All right, good morning, everyone. Thanks for being here this morning. This is our, uh, this is our third uh, week for this class uh, on real change, becoming more like Jesus in everyday life. We took last week off, and thanks for being back here this morning for this week. I want to pray for us. And then uh, we'll get started, and uh, I'll take a few moments. We'll take a few moments and uh, sort of come up to speed of where we've been a little bit, just uh, for maybe those of you who haven't uh, been here for the first couple, and then we'll jump in. Let's pray. Father, we are thankful to you again this morning for an opportunity to think together about something that we know is dear to you and that is change because we know that you saved us so that we would not remain the same but that we would become conformed to the image of Jesus Christ. Lord, you have given us grace for this purpose that we might be conformed to Christ and I pray that the result of our time together this morning would be that we would uh, learn together how to be more like Christ and how to change and uh, even in some long-standing and deep-rooted uh, sin and, and things that need to change Lord I pray that you would work in a powerful way by your spirit to change us Lord uh, we need your grace in a significant way and we thank you that you delight to give your spirit to those who ask and we ask you this morning for your spirit so please guide us please change us please teach us we pray in Christ's name amen all right well uh, so we're thinking together about real change and we uh, we we all in our Christian lives need change I'm sure we are, each of us, aware of areas of our lives that need change, and we want to continually be asking the Lord to help us see those areas in our lives that need change. Because we want to become more like Christ, that's what God has uh, intended for His people. Not just that we have our sins forgiven, but that we are conformed to the image of Jesus Christ. So, for example, uh, in Romans chapter 8, uh, Paul puts it this way. He says, we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. For those who are called according to His purpose. For those whom He foreknew, He also predestined to be conformed to the image of His Son. In order that He might be the firstborn among many brothers. So if we ask the question, why did God uh, set His love upon us before the foundation of the world? Why did He predestine His people? Uh, and, and the answer that Paul gives here in Romans 8 is that we would be conformed to the image of His Son. So we know that God's purpose for us from eternity past, from before the foundation of the world, is to change us, to take us from a life that is held under the sway of sin and conform us to the image of Jesus Christ. So thinking about real change is, is what God desires for us. Now what we've been talking about so far in the first two classes is 
that we all in our lives experience hardship and difficulty. And uh, what makes us Christians is not that we escape hardship and difficulty like other people do. It's not, this is not a, a prosperity gospel where God uh, takes away hardship from Christians. As long as we just pray to God for the right things, He'll take away our, all of our difficulties, hardships, struggles, all that sort of thing. That's not the case. The difference between Christians and those who are not Christians is how we respond to the hardships. Or as the book uh, Real Change puts it, uh, the heat that comes into our lives, we all have this heat. As long as we live in this world, in this time, we are going to experience hardship, we're going to experience difficulty, we're going to experience pain, things that test our faith sometimes. And so what we need to learn is not how to pray the right prayers for God to take away those kinds of difficulties all the time. We know, as Paul said, I, he had this thorn in his flesh and he asked the Lord three times to take it away and the Lord did not do so. But what the Lord did do is give Paul the grace that he needed to press on and to grow into the image of Christ through those things. And that's what we're trying to learn here. Not how to avoid all pain and hardship and difficulty and temptation, but how to respond to it so that we change more into the image of Jesus Christ. And I, I spoke last week about uh, these two uh, theological things that we should keep in mind as we're thinking about issues of change. One, and that is, is that we live in this overlap of the ages. And what I mean by that is that God has, has broken into the world through His Son and brought the powers of His kingdom, the powers of the age to come, into the present. So we have access by faith in Jesus Christ to the powers of the age to, of the age to come that, that break the power of sin in our lives. They, that is the reality that empowers our children. And God has already, in fact, won the victory over sin and Satan and death because of what He has done through Jesus Christ. That has already happened. So in one sense, as we are seeking to change and seeking to grow in putting away sin in our lives, we recognize that God has already, by His grace, won that victory so we can look to the past as Christians and see that God has done this already. Now on the other hand, we still live in the present age. So there is this overlap of the ages. So that even though God has broken finally and ultimately, He's already won the victory over the power of sin, we still will live in this age until Christ comes again to consummate all things. We still live in this world that is subjected to futility, as Paul puts it in Romans 8. and and. Uh, experiencing the effects of brokenness and sin. And that includes us. So uh, even Christians who have had the dominion of sin broken in our lives by the cross and by the resurrection of Jesus Christ and by the giving of the Spirit of God, all those things are important for us, we still will engage in a battle. Satan is still prowling around like a roaring lion seeking whom he may devour. And he's still shooting his fiery darts uh, at us, as Paul puts it in Ephesians 6, so that we need to take up the armor of God, so that as long as we still live in this world before uh, the final finishing of all things, we will still be at war. 
This is not a lazy river of faith. It is a fight of faith, as Paul puts it. That's why we need to work to take up this armor and those kinds of things. So we're always in this world living in this tension. And I say it's important to remember the tension because we, uh, we do not believe as Christians, according to Scripture, that we reach this sort of happy place in our Christian lives where we don't fight against sin anymore or where we reach perfection, sinless perfection. At the same time, we don't fight with hopelessness because of both of these realities. And it's important to keep this, intention, this tension in mind as we're seeking change. We don't fight with hopelessness because grace has come into our lives. And one of the things I mentioned last week, I'll say uh, just quickly by way of review, is that when we think about sin in Scripture, we realize that the primary uh, thing that drives sin in our lives that we struggle to change is the heart. Sin comes from the heart. We, we sometimes want to blame shift when it comes to our sin and put the blame on external circumstances or things that others do to us. And we talked last week about how sin comes from the heart. For example, if we're prone to be angry, uh, what we might do in our anger is shift the blame to someone else, what others are doing to us. Or, or we might shift the blame to our circumstances, some type of uh, sickness or physical malady or, or financial burden or something. And um, the scripture is pressing us to realize that um, before sin is caused by our external circumstances or by other people, it arises out of the heart as Jesus puts it. Nothing, nothing that enters into the mouth can defile a man or, or nothing that comes from the outside can ultimately defile. When we sin, it's something that arises from the heart. And we spoke last week about how when we sin, it's because these desires, these passions are, are taking control. Uh, scripture does not speak of sin as simply, you know, we talk sometimes about sin uh, meaning missing the mark or whatever. And I think Scripture speaks of sin not so much as missing the mark or breaking a command of God or not following the rules. Um, sin is not ultimately that. Sin is uh, a heart desire more than anything else. And, and sin is always personal as well, you know. As you think about, for example, what David says in Psalm 51, when he says, against you and you only have I sinned. He thinks of his sin not just as breaking a, an abstract command, but as sinning against God himself. It's personal. And so when we sin, it means our hearts are preferring something over God. Our hearts are preferring... Um, or taking pleasure in something over what God has given to us. Or when we sin because of a lack of faith, it means we're distrusting that God has our good in mind. And these things come from the heart and not from our external circumstances. So last week we went to Colossians um, chapter 3 and I offered uh, four first steps toward change. And let me just briefly say those again. Again, I'm just reviewing here briefly uh, for those of you who have not had a chance to uh, be here or to listen online. Four things that we learn from Colossians 3 in how to respond to 
the sin of our hearts that we are struggling to change. And one of the things we learned from Colossians 3 is that we need to uh, encounter sin and engage with the sin of our hearts by recognizing the truth of the grace that has already been given to us. And you can see that um, I didn't spend so much time the last time we were together in the first four verses of Colossians 3, so let me just read these one more time. But you notice this tension in the first four verses, this already and not, and not yet tension, that, that God has already given us the grace to overcome sin, yet He has not yet uh, made all things new, and so we still live in this in this tension, Colossians 3, 1 to 4, it says, if then, you, if then you have been raised with Christ. Notice the perfect tense that Paul uses there. It's already happened. We have already been raised with Christ. So in one sense, we're not waiting to be raised with Christ. In one sense, that has already happened for us. It says, if then you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on the things that are above, not on things that are on earth. And then notice again in verse 3, he says, For you have died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. So again, you, sometimes you read these passages and you think, was Paul confused? I mean, how can he say these two things at the same time? Because he says, uh, we have already been raised with Christ. We have already died with Christ, he says. And our lives are already hidden with Christ. And then he says, then set your mind on the things above and on earthly things. Seek those things that in one sense you already have. So he's recognizing that the victory over sin has already been won. And we can go in the hope of that grace as we try to seek to change. So it's not a hopeless battle because the victory's already been fought. But yet we still in this world need to strive to seek to set our minds on the things that are above and um, and not things that are on earth. So, and then he says in verse 4, when Christ who is your life appears, you also will appear with him in glory. And that's because of what he has already done through his death and resurrection. So the, the point I'm making here is that in our battle against sin, uh, one of our first steps is to remember the grace that has already been given to us. In, in other words, we don't need to despair as we encounter these challenges. Sometimes in our lives, these mountains, it seems like, that are impossible to move. I told you a, t a story last time we were together about a friend of mine who had been prone to make lists on a piece of paper of all of his sins and, uh, and to dwell on those things relentlessly and to feel the guilt and the burden and the weight of those things and... Um, so what I was trying to help him do was to see the grace that had already been given in Jesus Christ. And we all respond to these things differently, you know. Uh, some people in their battle against sin uh, take sin lightly, deal with it flippantly. And those folks need to recognize the seriousness of the situation. Some folks, like my friend, are prone to... Um, he was not prone to take sin lightly. Uh, he was taking it very seriously, which, is, which in one sense was good. But what he was missing was the already of the grace of Christ. So I think in, in our battle against sin, uh, a first step is to remember 
the grace that has already been given to us. I do want to say or give a couple of other thoughts on this particular point. That's part of the reason I'm reviewing this. Because in Scripture there are some rich passages that drive this point a little deeper. And let me put it this way. When Jesus died for sins on the cross, He did not simply die for sins in order to bring forgiveness for our sins. He died on the cross for sin, not just for, to break the, the penalty of sin, but also to break the power of sin. Sometimes in our Christian thinking, we, we do think of the cross as being a means of forgiveness. And it is that. And it's glorious. We don't always perhaps think of the cross as a means of, of giving us the power to live lives apart from sin or with power to overcome sin. And the cross does that. The grace of the cross is as much that as it is the forgiveness, perhaps even more. Because like we said before, Jesus didn't come and die for our sins simply to provide forgiveness. He came and died for our sins so that we might be conformed to His image. And the cross is what accomplishes that for us. I heard a, a really well-known pastor one time say something like, the grace of God is so great that if you believe in Jesus by faith and then somewhere out there turn away from God and live a life of sin, His grace is so great that even then uh, you, you're, you will be saved. You will know the grace of God. And he was using that as an example to say how great the grace of God was. And what I think, I think Scripture finds that appalling. I think Scripture teaches that's not the greatness of grace. The reality is the grace is so great that it not only forgives your sins forever, but it sets about to transform your life so that the things that destroy you God's grace changes. He loves you that deeply. And this is a work of God and not a work of your own. Uh, Ephesians chapter 5, notice this. Uh, this is in a passage where Paul's talking about marriage, but he speaks about the cross here. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. Verse 26, that he might sanctify her having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. Why did Jesus give himself for the church? Notice what Paul says there. He gave himself for the church that he might sanctify her, having washed her with the water, so that he might present her without spot or wrinkle. You see, that's why Jesus gave his life on the cross, because he wanted to cleanse us and change us and make us into a, a beautiful and spotless and pure bride for himself. That's the grace of the cross that he has given. One other passage on this is Titus uh, that I want to read. Titus, this is chapter 2 beginning in verse 11. Titus 2 verse 11, it says, For the grace of God has appeared. 
Now, I love that first line because here Paul's talking about how the Son of God has come. And Paul calls that the grace of God. The coming of Jesus is the grace of God. Now, what is that grace of God coming for? Why did that grace of God appear? It says, the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions, and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age. So you see, that's why the grace of God appeared. Not just to forgive our sins, but to train us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age. In the present age, you see, we're not just waiting to be holy. This grace is for the present. Verse 13, waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us. Now hear this, Paul, Paul's about to say why Jesus gave himself for us who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. That's interesting, isn't it? Why did Jesus give himself for us? So that our sins could be forgiven and we could be reconciled to God. Absolutely, that's true. But he gave himself for us here. What's on Paul's mind is that he gave himself for us to redeem us from those things that destroy us. That's love. That's grace. He doesn't want that for us anymore. Redeem us from lawlessness and to purify us for himself. That's why he gave his life on the cross. So again, all this is part of this first point I want to make from Colossians 3. How do we, how do we change in those areas where we're struggling against sin. The first thing we gotta remember, I think, is, is to go back to the cross and to remember Jesus has already crucified my sin. And Jesus died on that cross not just to forgive me but to change me and to make me into a pure and spotless bride for himself he loves me that much, and He has already done that. I can trust in that. That kind of grace is going to precede my change, always. I'm not going to be able to just pull up my bootstraps and change. Grace always pre precedes our change. That happens all throughout the Bible, everywhere. You ever notice that uh, when God gave the Ten Commandments on Mount Sinai, he did not do that so that the people would uh, keep those things in order to earn his favor. Not even in the Old Testament. He rescued them by his grace alone out of Egypt. By his grace alone. And because he loved them, he gave them good commands that would cause their lives to flourish under his lordship. And the same thing happens here. God rescues us not from slavery in Egypt, but from our slavery to sin by the cross of Jesus Christ already before we change at all. And he does that and, and by that cross then seeking to change us. This is exactly what Paul says in Ephesians 2. We were dead in our trespasses and sins. Following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, we were by nature children of wrath, 
carrying out the desires of the body and mind. That's who we were. But Ephesians 2.4, But God, who is rich in mercy, because of the great love with which He loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses and sins, He made us alive together with Christ. So that grace comes to us when we are dead, even while we are dead. There is this God who is rich in mercy. Because of the great love with which He loves us, He makes us alive from the dead. That's His doing by His grace alone. And again, Paul is dumbfounded by that. So he stops in the middle of his sentence right there and, and to say, by grace you have been saved. And then he continues his sentence. And he raised us from the dead and seated us with Him in the right hand of the Father. But if you get to the end of that paragraph in Ephesians 2, Paul says in verse 10, after he ju had just said, by grace you've been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing, it is a gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. Then he says in verse 10, for we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. So you notice what Paul's doing. God, by his grace, comes to you before you change. And he makes you alive from the dead by his grace alone. It's not your own doing. And he does that... Because he's, because he's making you into his workmanship uh, and because um, he's creating you in Christ Jesus for good works which he prepared beforehand that you should walk in them. So you see, again, you see, what is grace here? Is it just forgiveness? It's not. This grace takes us all the way to God's handiwork that does good works that give honor and glory to His transforming power by grace. Okay? So again, the first step I think in change is to remember what God has already done through Christ and His Spirit to change us because He loves us so much. That is great love and grace. Now, the second thing I mentioned from Colossians 3 real quickly last week, and I'll go quickly through his last three so we can get to some new things here. The second thing I mentioned from Colossians 3 is that after the grace already comes, we, uh, we labor to put away sin. You notice sometimes how the New Testament speaks of change as though sometimes we've got to fight. So this is not a lazy river of faith where I say, okay, thank you for your grace, Lord. Now I'm going to lay back and just coast along while you change me. Uh, that's not the way Scripture talks either. It's, so, you know, Scripture has these, you might call them tensions, but they're not tensions in God's way of doing things, but they might seem like it to us. I've already been, uh, my, my sin has already been crucified, yet I still must set my mind on things above? Yes. Or like we saw last week from 1 Corinthians 15 where Paul says, I worked harder than all the other apostles, yet not I but the grace of God. There are these kinds of passages all over the place. I, Paul says in one place in 1 Corinthians, I discipline my body and I bring it into subjection so that I might not run in such a way that I don't receive the prize. Yet he recognizes it's always grace from start to finish. So grace is compatible with our labor. God changes our character, meaning He gives us the will and the desire and the strength 
to labor toward holiness. No one ever uh, changed by simply coasting along. And the, and the scriptures don't give us those kinds of, of thoughts. Paul says in Romans 8, uh, as, after he's talked about all who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of, are sons of God. Okay, so the Spirit of God is leading us. But then he says, put to death you, uh, by the Spirit of God, you put to death the deeds of the body. So he's using this language of put to death sin. Set your mind on things above. There are these things that we must do. So sometimes it really takes this, as I mentioned last week, this cutting off the hand, this gouging out the eye, this slashing and burning. I think, and I said last week, I think about this every time I'm working in my yard. I'm trying to make this beautiful lawn. You know, I'm thinking, I love to make a pure and spotless lawn, you know, like Jesus loving his bride here. And sometimes what I have to do is not just sprinkle the, the weed killer out on the lawn and go, but sometimes it takes me getting down on my hands and knees and, you know, I'm pulling out this root that I know if I don't pull out this root right here, it's going to spread. I've seen it happen too many times. And isn't that what sin is like? If I don't get down on my hands and knees and pull out this root, it's going to spread in my life. Okay? And I have the power to do that by grace. Uh, but sometimes if we're struggling to change, then perhaps there are some ways where we haven't rooted things out where we haven't put to death we haven't set our minds we haven't slashed and burned like we really should uh, there's a passage in hebrews that comes to mind where it uh, says you you haven't yet um, shed blood in uh, fighting against your sin I'm, I'm paraphrasing there a little bit but every, you know, I read that and think, yeah, it, it, there's sometimes when um, fighting against sin uh, might take some of that. You know, Jesus, when he was praying in the garden, was perhaps you know being tempted, and uh, he poured out his soul to the Lord, like sweating like drops of blood. You know, so. Maybe there's some areas in our lives where we just haven't been ruthless enough. And we wonder why we haven't changed. And maybe that's the reason. Uh, okay, last two real quickly. One is uh, Paul speaks in Colossians 3 about um, letting the Word of Christ dwell in you richly. So this is a third way to change. Let the Word of Christ dwell in you richly. Remember the way Jesus fought against temptation, Satan's temptations in the wilderness? He did it with Scripture. And you get the sense that Jesus is not just searching for verses that might help him there. You get the sense that this was a man who's, where the Scriptures were coursing through his veins from a lifetime of swimming in the Word of God. You see that on the cross, you know, when Jesus is in excruciating pain, may not have the words to speak, what comes out of his mouth are the Psalms. You know, no doubt from a life of pouring into the Psalms. And when he's in encountering Satan, uh, he has on, his, on the tip of his tongue these scriptures that all come from Deuteronomy, which, is, which was purposeful, you know, because Israel in their 40 years of wandering in the wilderness... Uh, did put God to the test and did not trust God. 
And Jesus, when he's doing his 40 days of wilderness wandering and being tempted by Satan, he draws upon those passages from Deuteronomy, which were coursing through his veins in order to fight temptation. And so, you know, uh, I've hidden your word in my heart that I might not sin against you, as Psalm 119 says. And so, uh, this is another way if we're struggling to change. Let's go get some passages of Scripture that we can memorize, that we can hide in our hearts, that we can swim in uh, and, and draw on during those strongest moments of temptation. And I, I'm not just talking about Scriptures that um, speak directly, per se, to the sin we're dealing with. That might be good. You know, you're dealing with uh, lust or anger or whatever. It might be good to find Scriptures that speak to that specifically. But what I've found in my life at times is just uh, Scriptures, any Scriptures that draws my heart to trust God for His goodness and grace or these Scriptures about what Jesus has done for us on the cross. You know, those can be powerful things to draw to mind in the midst of temptation or in our desire to change as well. And, and may even be more effective, you know. <laughs> the best defense is a good offense, you know, like they say sometimes in sports. Well, that can happen in, in life as well. And then finally, uh, we mentioned the body of Christ as being, uh, perhaps sometimes our struggle to change may be a reflection of the fact that we're not bringing these struggles and temptations before others who can care for us and help us grow and engage with us in these things. Um, we're, you know, we're hiding these kinds of struggles. We may be saying, Lord, why am I not changing? Why am I not changing? And I'm trying to do this alone. Uh, Hebrews 3, verse 12 says, Take care, brothers, lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart leading you to fall away from the living God. But exhort one another every day, as long as it is called today, that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. So there you see the author of Hebrews is suggesting that one of the best ways not to be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin is to exhort one another every day, as long as it's called the day. So we need others in this fight against sin. Okay. Now let me uh, go a couple of new places here with this. Um, I want to talk for a few minutes about the idea of repentance and ask the question, what, what is repentance? So when we need to change in our lives, there's sin we're struggling with, repentance is what we need. We know re repentance is a, a central part of the Christian life. Uh, repent and believe are um, what happens when we are saved, right? And repenting and believing is something that we never leave aside. It's not something we just do at the beginning of our Christian life. It's something that we always do. These are two sides of the same coin. There's no genuine faith without repentance. And there's no genuine repentance without faith. Those two things go together. They're inherent in one another. If I, if I trust, for example, by faith that Jesus Christ is Lord and that He is good, 
then that means in my that means by nature in my life I'm not trusting in something else as my lord so you see how repentance is inherent in faith you don't you don't really trust something if you don't forsake other things in order to follow it and the the opposite is true as well I'm not really going to follow someone or something unless I trust that someone or something, you know. And this is why um, sometimes you see in Scripture maybe only repentance uh, will be mentioned. Repent and you'll be saved. Or believe and you will be saved. The reality is that those two things cannot be separated from one another as Scripture presents them. But let's talk about repentance for just a moment. What we need to do when we, when we recognize this temptation, this struggle, this need for change, which is so important, uh, recognizing it, how should we think about repentance? Well, the first thing I want to say is that repentance is not synonymous with the actions that we do. It's, it's not the change that we make, is what I mean. So sometimes you may have heard someone say, you know, repentance is you're going this way and you turn and you go this way. And there may be some truth to that, but I don't want to leave the indication that the, that the actions are to be identified uh, exactly or defined as the repentance Repentance is not the actions. Repentance is a, a, tr a change of allegiance in the heart first before it is an action. Um, you know, I, I'm, I'm, I'm often skeptical of these kinds of arguments, but the Greek word for repentance actually means something like a change of mind. Metanoia is the word. It, it's not outward action first as much as it is a fundamental transformation of the allegiance of the soul. So it begins deeper than the outward actions is what I'm trying to say. Uh, and just to give you um, a brief defense of that, in, for example, Luke chapter 3, when John the Baptist is talking about repentance, um, John chapter 3, I'm sorry, Luke chapter 3, verse 7, it says, He said, therefore, to the crowds that came out to be baptized by him, You brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? And listen to verse 8. Bear fruits in keeping with repentance. So notice what he's saying there. He's not saying the fruits are repentance. He's saying bear fruits in keeping with repentance. So the repentance must be something deeper first before the fruits come out. The root has to change before the fruit looks good, you see. So repentance is something in the heart. I think it's a, the way I would just say it is, it's a, whatever it is that drives us as human beings. When whatever that is, call it your heart, your soul, whatever it is, the allegiance that you have, that fundamentally changes from an allegiance to something else besides God to God. He becomes our heart, our will, our desires, allegiance. That's what repentance truly is. And then the fruits come out of that. Bear fruits in keeping 
with that repentance. And I think this goes back to what we're saying about how sin is rooted in the heart. It begins in the heart. So we can't just repent by changing our outward actions. And sometimes we as Christians, we, we slide into that way of thinking. And in some ways, that's easy. You know, it's in, like in the New Testament, that's kind of Phariseeism. I can really whitewash the outside of this tomb. You know, I can do this outward action. That's easy. You might say, no, that's, that's really hard. I can't change my actions. Well, but in one sense, this is much easier. If I could just, you know, add some things to my Christian list to get done, I can do that. You know, I can make myself do that sometimes, you know. I, uh, and this is why we're saying that is, that is an enemy to Christian realities. Just changing outward actions. We don't want to get to the places we think about change of just trying to change outward actions. Something deeper has got to happen in our hearts. And, of course, God does that by His grace to make us alive from the dead, but there's got to be a heart desire change. And then the fruit comes in keeping with that. Now let me also put it this way. Um, repentance is not the same thing as our, as our actions. Okay? What we could also say is that repentance is not the same thing as our emotions either. So what I'm saying is, if repentance is a fundamental change of allegiance, of the heart, I don't mean we always know that there's repentance because of some type of emotional response to the Word of God. And there's a couple of passages, or two or three passages in Scripture that I think about often in this that are sobering. One of those passages is, uh, well, the parable of, so of the soils is one of these. While I'm in Luke here, uh, I'll go to Luke chapter 8. Luke chapter 8. And here, as Jesus is describing this parable, you know the parable, the, uh, the sower goes out to sow the seed, and the seed falls on four different types of soil. There's the path, and the birds snatch it away, which is the same as Satan snatching the Word of God from us. Uh, the second kind of soil is um, the thorny soil. And when the seed is spread among the thorns, the thorns grow up and choke out the seed. You know, and Jesus says this is like when the Word of God, um, when you hear the Word of God and then the cares of this world and the, the desires for other things in life choke out the Word from our lives. But the rocky soil, uh, the way Jesus describes the rocky soil is fascinating. Because here, with the rocky soil, the seed falls on it, and, and it's not deep. You know, the seed is just too shallow. So it springs up quickly because it's shallow, but when the sun comes out, the roots are not deep enough for that uh, to flourish, that plant to flourish and bear fruit. And what Jesus says is that this is like when, uh, well, let me read this in, in Luke 8, verse 13. He says, the ones on the rock are those who, when they hear the word, receive it with joy. But these have no root. They believe for a while and in time of testing fall away. So you see, there are some folks that 
have an initial response of joy to the Word of God. But when the pressures of life come, as they always do, like we said, I told you a little while ago, the Christian life is not marked by God taking away our pains and difficulties and sorrows and struggles. In fact, maybe it's the opposite for Christians, you know, uh, at times. So when those difficulties inevitably come, does that initial response of joy fade away because the roots are not deep enough? So you see what I'm suggesting? We can't say that repentance can be identified with an, 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 an emotional response to the word either. Uh, there must be you know, as you see here, we, we can discover through testing how deep those roots are sometimes. I don't think this means that we can't have assurance apart from testing. What I am because I, I think like Romans 8 says, the, the Spirit of God bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. That happens no matter what our experiences are. But when we go through seasons of trial and difficulty and testing, and through those ups and downs, we come out through those fires on the other side, like First Peter puts it. That can encourage us that there are roots here that are not just in the shallows. Um, and we know that our faith is not simply an emotional response, but it's real, it's real change. One other passage I think about on this point is 2 Corinthians chapter 9. Uh, I'm sorry, 2 Corinthians chapter 7, beginning in verse 9. 2 Corinthians 7, beginning in verse 9. Paul says, As it is, I rejoice not because you were grieved, but because you were grieved into repenting. So notice he doesn't identify grief with repentance. They're not the same there, you know. Grieved into repenting, for you felt a godly grief so that you suffered no loss through us, and what he's going to do here is he's going to differentiate between godly grief and worldly grief. He says in verse 10, for godly grief produces a repentance that leads to salvation without regret, whereas worldly grief produces death. So you see again, Paul is not identifying repentance with emotions because you can have sorrow and grief, maybe tears even, and it may not be a godly repentance fully. Maybe the tears come from, you know, from we just got caught or something, or, our, or we're sorrowful that our reputation has been soiled, or we're, or we're just grieved because we don't like the results of what sin is causing in our lives. But there's not a fundamental uh, repentance that makes us desirous of change fully. So he goes on to say here in verse 11, For see what earnestness this godly grief has produced in you, but also what eagerness to clear yourselves, what indignation, what fear, what longing, what zeal, what punishment. At every point you proved yourselves innocent in the matter. So it seems like what Paul is saying is that genuine repentance, it's not just outward actions, and it's not just emotional responses. But it's the kind of fundamental allegiance of heart and soul to the living God who we trust 
that produces a kind of zealousness and eagerness and longing to grow in Christ and to put away sin in our lives in a way that over time we can see the fruits of. It doesn't mean there aren't ups and downs, but it does, a godly grief produces a, you know, a track record of, of earnestness to put away sin. It's sobering, isn't it, um, to think this way? And again, I don't, think, I don't think any of this is meant to make us morbid in introspection. Am I a Christian? Am I not a Christian? How long have I been persevering? Have I been persevering? All that. None of this changes the reality of what we spoke about a while ago of how if there's going to be change, it's going to be because of the grace of God at the cross. And there is always going to be this war that we're engaged with. that are going to be up and downs. But, but uh, the passages like this are given to us, I think, to um, press us to earnestness in putting away our sin because God desires to make us like Christ. Okay, let me say, um, let me say one other quick thing here. Um, the book at this point uh, takes us to the parable of the, brod- the prodigal son for just a moment. And let me close with this. I'll be brief with this. I could spend a lot of time on this parable, but let me just try to be real brief in saying uh, what happens in the parable of the prodigal son. First, when you think about the parable, um, you've got two brothers in that that parable, right? You've got the the, the brother who is the prodigal who commits sin that is egregious. His sin is, you could hardly describe it in a worse way. He he basically desires his father to be dead, right? Goes to him and says, "Uh, I want my inheritance now. In other words... Uh, I'd rather you be dead. I don't have any interest in you. I just want your stuff now so that I can take it. And uh, so his, his father agrees to it, but he's dishonored his father. He's wished he's his dead. And he takes the, the inheritance and he goes and he lives in, uh, in terrible sin. Profligate living. And he spends all of the money that he has on his sinful passions. So much so that he's in a destitute place, you know. He's got nothing left. He, he, he's eating the food from the pigs and all that. And he realizes, you know, my ser- the servants of my father are living better than I do now. Then there's this other brother, you know, who um, after the prodigal brother returns home and the father receives him with joy, the older brother is angry um, at the grace that the father gives to the younger brother, you know. I've been here all the time and you've never so much as given me a, uh, it's telling what he says, given me, you know, a calf that I might go and celebrate with my friends. And as you read the story, I think the reality is that even though these brothers are far different from each other, fundamentally they are the same. And that is that they, they both desire their father's stuff and not the father himself, you know? The, the, the younger brother or the prodigal son uh, has no interest in the father. He just wants to take the stuff and live according to his own passions. The older brother has no interest in the father. He does what he does, these outward actions, you see. This is not repentance, a genuine repentance. 
He wants his father's stuff too and not the father. But he's going about it in a different way. You know, this is of course why Jesus sometimes says that the prostitutes are entering the kingdom before you guys. The older brother's sinful condition is probably more serious than the prodigal. Because in his pride he can't see it. The prodigal sees the disaster that his sin has caused. And the younger brother um, comes to his father in seeming some measure of repentance. But you know, as, a, as you read the story, I'm not so certain that the way it talks about it is as though the, the prodigal has really reached these heights of clarity, of repentance. You know, I think it presents it almost like I can see that my sin is destroying me. And it's, I'd, I'd be better off being one of my father's servants. You know, I'm not certain yet that it's meant to say he's got this great level of height of repentance. I don't think that the story is meant to help us to see the greatness of the prodigal son's repentance, you see. It's meant to show us the greatness of the father's grace and love. And there's a, there is a lesson for us, I think, here in terms of change. So as the younger brother is returning... His father sees him in the distance, and he uh, probably shamefully in that culture, you know, lifts up his robes, and he makes a beeline. He runs for his son. He's so overcome with joy. My son was dead, and now he is alive again. He throws his arms around his son. He weeps over him. He kisses him. He, he calls for the best robe to be put on him, for his ring to be put on his finger, which is his own identity. And uh, inheritance. He calls for the killing of the fatted calf. There's singing and dancing and celebration. You know, this is the kind of father that we have in heaven. When, you know, maybe we don't always think of him this way, but this is who he is. He's a father who sings and dances at the celebration and who loves us like this. Notice that the father did not come to the son and, and give him a lecture first. You know, this was not a wise way for you to spend my money. You have dishonored me and hurt me. You know, I'm going to receive you back, but I just got to tell you first. You know, that's not the way that the father responds. You, you just get the sense that this father is the father of initiating grace, of undeserved love and not a sort of of timid undeserved love but a lavish unbelievable undeserved grace unbelievable and when it comes to our thinking about change these struggles that we have in our own lives uh, this parable, I think, helps us to see, you know, how we can engage with these things. We are coming to a father who delights to give good things to his children. We're coming to a father who is loving and longing and pursuing us long before we recognize the slop we're in and return to him. So you think... Oh, this sin that I've been struggling with, I'm struggling to change so much. God must be angry with me. There must be some distance. I remember a number of years ago in my own life when I would feel like I was really, you know, given into temptation and sin. God must be distant from me. And I remember I would sometimes even think, well, 
I need to wait a few days here before God's going to be, you know, <laughs> for me on good terms with God again. And as I was thinking about things like this, and 1 John 1, 9 in particular, I remember I was one morning as I was getting ready just thinking, that, this is such wrong thinking. You know, the moment I give in to temptation and sin, the best thing for me to do is not to distance myself from God but to flee to Him immediately in repentance and faith and realize that uh, He is this prodigal father, as Tim Keller calls Him. You know, he's, He wants to deal with my sin and, and reconcile me and bring me to Himself. And... There's much more to say about this, but let me just make this final point. I think the best way for us to change and deal with these kinds of struggles that we have, whatever they might be in our lives, is um, not just to think about the sin and how to fix it all the time. It, it can help us to do that. It's good sometimes to make plans for how to fight against our sin. But the most powerful antidote to our sin, I think, is to fill our hearts and minds with the glory of this Father. It's, it's the power of a, of a delight and a new affection that causes the things of this world to grow strangely dim in the light of His glory and grace. So like we said a little while ago, the most powerful defense is a great offense. So the point I'm making is the more we are opening our eyes to the wonders and graces and beauties and glories of this God and His grace, the more sin is going to become less attractive to us. And I use that word attractive because that's what we've talked about with sin. If sin is a heart thing more than anything else, it's a desire issue more than anything else then what we need to do is find ways to change our desires. And the best way to change our desires is not to tell our desires to go away, you know? If I say to myself, I will not think about purple elephants, 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 well, I'm thinking about purple elephants. But if I'm setting my mind on the grace and glory of this God in, in, in Christ, then I'm not thinking about purple elephants. <laughs> or I'm not thinking about whatever the sinful temptation is that's drawing me. I'm filling my heart with a desire that outstrips the desire of sin. Like Jeremiah 2 says, Be appalled, O heavens, at the sin of Israel. What's their sin? They have, they have forsaken the fountain of living waters and have hewn out for themselves broken cisterns that cannot hold water. They're desiring broken cisterns when there's a fountain of living waters there. So how do you fight against that? Not just by trying to fix the broken cistern, but by coming to drink from the fountain of living waters. There is this feast. Come to me, all you who are thirsty. And without money, without price, and buy. Why do you eat what does not satisfy you? when there is this feast. So again, fighting for change is not just about coming up with the right steps to, to fix it. It's about tasting and seeing that the Lord is good. That's the best way for us to change. Okay, well, um, 
there's a lot of material there in the book that we're trying to, to do here, <laughs> doing really six chapters in four. So if it feels like a lot, that's, that's part of the reason why, and I apologize for that. But hopefully uh, this can be helpful to you. Uh, any, any quick question from anyone? Um, we're short on time here, but I'll, if there are any questions, I'll be happy to answer. Or I can talk with you afterwards. Okay. All right, well, thank you for your patience and dedication. Uh, next week, we'll have one more class, and uh, Jeff will be here to um, finish this off and add some good thoughts for us. But let me pray in closing. Father, we thank you that we don't have to uh, think about change in our lives without hope, but you have given us grace through the cross, through the resurrection of your Son. Lord, we thank you that your grace precedes any of our attempts to change. We change because of your gracious power and of your love for us. And we thank you for that, Lord. And I pray, God, in those, those places, we, in this room, we all have those areas of our lives that need to change. And I pray we would apply this gospel help to our lives, Lord. Help us to remember your grace. Help us to delight in your word and to treasure your word to help us. Lord, give us strength to root out sin wherever it is, to cut it out and to take steps that need to be taken to cut it out. Lord, help us to open ourselves to others, brothers and sisters who can help us and pray for us and encourage us and speak truth and love to us and help us. Lord, we pray that we won't be too prideful to receive the help that we need with these certain areas of our lives that need change. Lord, I pray that you would grant to us real repentance in our lives where we trust you and we love you. And Lord, I pray that you would fill our lives with a deeper taste of your goodness and grace. So much so, Lord, that uh, the the longings that we have for these things that seem like chains to us and burdens to us and mountains that we can't move, those things will just almost imperceptibly even uh, fade away because of our, our delight in you. Lord, we need that kind of power at work in us by your Spirit. We pray in Jesus' name, amen.